0: Welcome to The Human Reboot with me Emma Last. We have uplifting, inspiring and diverse reboot stories from people sharing the courageous, honest, authentic and sometimes difficult life lessons. The Human Reboot will provide proven mentally flourishing formulas and practical tips to help you to live life to the full, giving you direction and hope. Make your mental fitness and well-being a daily priority. Learn to pause so that you can get clear and perform at your best. Switch off to switch on. It's time for your human reboot. Before we start this episode, it may contain conversations that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel that might apply to you, You can check the show notes for more details. So, today on the Human Reboot podcast, I have with me Tim Carr. Tim has worked in the NHS, he has co founded multiple social enterprise initiatives, he's worked within the corporate world and he now works as a leadership coach and consultant. He's spent the last six years devoting his time to condensing all he's learned about psychology, neuroscience, and managing people into meaningful tools that help others understand what might be getting in the way of their influence. Thanks for coming on the podcast today, Tim.
1: It's fantastic. Thanks very much for inviting me, Emma.
0: Would you tell us a little bit more about your background? Because I know that you've definitely worked in some interesting places.
1: I've been really fortunate. I think I'm very, very grateful to the universe for putting me at the right place at the right time lots of times. And I've been very fortunate to work with some great people. I worked in the health service and then I worked at the Natural History Museum and when I was based there, I did some sabbaticals that took me to fantastic places around the world, like the Natural History Museum of America in Washington, D.C. I even worked in the FBI building for a little while, although I didn't work. it wasn't a special agent. And I worked at Disney for a short time as well, helping them get ready for opening the Euro Disney. So that was way back in the 90s. And I've done all sorts of things since.
0: So I know you've worked you work with executives pretty much across the world. How many people do you think you've helped?
1: Oh, I think in the last six or seven years, probably between two and two and a half thousand executives in different organizations in thirty countries. So it's been been interesting. Yeah
0: Fabulous. Would you mind sharing your reboot story? So when we talk about reboots on the human reboot, it's all about when we feel that we've had to overcome adversity. Or it could be that we've had to pause and reflect and reset and maybe shift in a different direction
1: mm. I think my life has been very different since my i had a partner about eleven years ago who had cancer he didn't survive unfortunately his life was cut short within a year and a half of him being diagnosed with leukemia but it was at the point that he died that I realized that i'd continue to work flat out I was working for a corporate organization at the time and it was a stark realization after Trent's passing that I'd not really kept things in perspective so that was a very powerful learning experience for me and and has kind of propelled me towards the 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 coaching and well-being arena really for for want of a better expression for understanding what happens when we get to the point of Being broken our our mental health is fragile so I'm a great proponent for really understanding yourself and knowing what your own habits are and and taking time to notice listen to yourself many of us have been you know if you've been working for 20 years we don't even know when we need a wee yeah sometimes we can sit in meetings and we don't even know if we're hungry because we're so used to putting ourselves on hold so that ability to notice what we what we need gets eroded over time so the kind of thing that I encourage people to do often is to start by journaling write down what are you noticing a great sign that I'm under pressure is if I notice my finger wagging if I start raising a finger as if I'm going to tell somebody what I think of them and my voice gets louder and I'm getting speaking more quickly I've I've got myself in the grip of my anxiety of, of adversarial approach which is the opposite of what I want to be but I'm I'm a human so I can get triggered and uh, that's the language that the young people are using at the moment isn't it we get triggered by somebody else's behavior that maybe reminds us of a time when we felt overwhelmed when we were younger and we find ourselves suddenly speaking in this way that isn't really how we want to be the other thing that's really powerful for me for resetting for rebooting is breath Taking a deep breath, even when things are getting stressful. So like earlier, before I came on the call, I did a few deep breaths before we connected because that little narrative that's in me starts to go, oh, what do you know about being on a podcast and being live? What are people going to think? So you're kind of learning that you can manage yourself and put yourself into a, a different headspace to be the best version of you. These are just tools, aren't they?
0: Yeah. And do you know what? Well, I'm quite surprised about that because you don't usually have a problem talking, Tim, do you? (laughs) 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 Being uh, a lad from Leeds.
1: (laughs) Being a northerner. And I think, you know, we're socialised, aren't we? You might be surprised to know, however, that if we were looking at my certain models in psychology, I'm actually an introvert. But I'm a social introvert, so I'm quite strong socially. But my energy comes from me. So one of the problems when I talk about noticing yourself, I'm very happy on my own. I'm a bit of a nerd. I really enjoy books. I really enjoy studying. But part of being an introvert means that I'm often alone. And if I allow myself to let my internal negative critical voice overwhelm me, I can really bully myself. Yeah. So it's interesting that you've noticed that I'm very talkative. Maybe part of me being talkative is when I'm nervous.
0: It might be. Why do I make you nervous?
1: (laughs) Not not today. Not Not today today you don't. Not today.
0: Not when you (laughs) can (laughs) see me.
1: So if you're sneaking up behind me.
0: (laughs) So you've just shared a real reboot moment in your life have there mm. been any you know other points in your life that have really shaped who you are?
1: I think those of us that are sensitive to the needs of others have usually had experiences where we felt vulnerable our, our challenge is not to implode in our vulnerability. I was bullied a lot at school I had a, I had a perfectly normal upbringing I'm very much loved by my mum and dad we're very close. I've got a fantastic younger brother, but I had a bone disease when I was about five and that meant that I didn't walk for a couple of years. And then I was—I felt bullied when I was at school because I was different to the other kids and I didn't feel that I fitted in. And of course, not playing football because I was disabled, but not playing football because I didn't like being with the boys that got me really bullied and and I was called a puff way before I realised I was gay. You know, but I remember boys and girls outside school when I was about seven or eight saying, are you a boy or a girl? And me just having that hideous, terrified feeling, to be honest, and carrying that really into adulthood. Mm. And only, only realising in the last kind of 10 or 15 years, really, that we all wear masks that kind of prevent other people from being able to see our vulnerability so in answer to your question I think that my 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 journey of life has has been filled with all sorts of times when I felt very vulnerable but I don't think that makes me special I think that makes me insightful
0: yeah I would say you definitely come across as someone who is very thoughtful understanding a real wise owl I would say
1: that's very kind. Thank you very much.
0: So you've just mentioned about being gay, and in your bio you say that you identify as a white cis male and queer.
1: Absolutely. So the cis part is the genetics; it's what the my X and Y chromosomal mix have given me. So I'm I'm a male through biology, but the label of queer is something that might be surprising for people because when I was growing up being called a queer was a derogatory term but in the last couple of years I I ran a program with 400 delegates from a a multinational company we brought together people of all sorts of diversities for a, a diversity and inclusion hackathon to look at how we could improve the environment and I heard a conversation between two young people that were talking about they're identifying as queer, and I suddenly realized that was me as well. And what they were saying was that historically, the sensitivity, the desire to encourage and to connect with children, softness, being interested in someone else, being affectionate, being concerned for the well being of another person, these were all attributes associated with being feminine or being female. And I'm I'm very strongly of the opinion that all that's wrong with society is that women are derided consistently. So if I have these attributes that are associated with being feminine, then I stand up absolutely as a queer. And I will be counted amongst other queers because we need to change society. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I love that. It started to clear it up a little bit for me because... Like you, when I was younger, it was seen as a derogatory term. And actually, my kids came home and said something. Oh, such, oh, right. such a body has come out as queer. And I went, oh, you can't say that. And that was a couple of years ago. So obviously it obviously, must have been relatively new um, at that point. So I've been kind of like really thinking about, is the Q queer or is it questioning? Or is it both? Some kind of descriptions that you, you know, when you look it up and you try and educate yourself, sometimes it is queer, sometimes it is questioning. But what would you say? So if someone was to say to you, what is the real difference between being gay and being queer? I
1: think that I'm making a statement, really, about helping other people to question their own prejudice. So we've created a society, you know, in 2021 where people who've been othered absolutely fighting for their rights and their equality now. And if I don't lean into my vulnerability in terms of inviting people to judge me, then I'm not going to make a difference for the next generation. And there's a general acceptance in society at the moment that gay people have equality, and that's not true. The reality is teenagers all around the world kill themselves every year Mm -hmm. because someone's told them that they're a puff or a queer or a dyke. Yeah. And we've got to create a society where we're not really interested in that anymore. We're not really bothered. I've never been promoted for anything other than my competence and my capability. Yeah. My position, my power has come from my privilege, however, because as a white male... I can walk into a bank and I can go to the front of the queue and say, I'd like to talk about a mortgage today. And they'll say, oh, Mr. Carr, please take a seat. And an Asian woman stood behind me that wants to come in and ask for a mortgage will be assumed to probably not be afforded the same kind of level of opportunity. Mm -hmm. And we've got to change that. And as a white middle aged man with privilege, I want to make a difference for everybody else because that's my opportunity.
0: Yeah and that's how I feel. I've said in another of my podcasts about holding the ladder down when you have got the opportunity that you hold that ladder down to groups that may be more at risk, groups that may have faced more barriers than you have in your life and groups that might not have had the same privilege that you've had.
1: I think one of the things that gets in the way, though, Emma, is that most of us, we're really busy. People are really stressed. They're under pressure. And unless you've learned to, as you describe it, reboot, unless you've learned to get off the hamster wheel of life and go, I'm going to take a breath here and and notice what's important to me, what most people do is just get on with what they're doing. Whereas I think it's really important, the work that you're doing is really important because we've had a global reboot, haven't we?
0: Yeah.
1: But what I'm noticing in businesses and organisations is that most people are desperate to get back to how things used to be. And if people in business, if leaders and managers don't understand that being able to form a powerful human connection, to be able to form trust If you don't get that that's your priority, you're going to have a huge number of very disenfranchised and angry people who are no longer willing to put up with that status quo that we might have done before COVID. We're going to say no. Your behaviour, your attitude, your politics and the culture that you've created, Mr. and Mrs. Leader, in your business isn't what I want. And our customers aren't going to want to come back to that culture either.
0: Yeah, absolutely, I do really think that a lot of people's view on the world has changed and I know we've had conversations before around human leadership and the reason why this is called the Human Reboot podcast is because in my past I've always felt that I was a human leader, very human in my approach and it's sometimes I was criticised for that and I think actually now more than ever in the businesses and workplaces that I work with and the leaders and entrepreneurs that I work with. It's about authenticity and it's about creating an environment where people can belong and they can feel accepted for whatever their differences are. But it's about not being robotic in our approach or being textbook because sometimes we need to be human.
1: So coming back to your question about whether I've, you know, there's been other times in my life where I've had to have a reboot, a re there's been many, many times. That, in fact, I, sometimes I've really worried about my own mental health. There's been periods where I've had to take SSRIs, antidepressants, for your listeners. To help me get out of depression, I also struggled from terrible anxiety, but most people wouldn't notice it because I'm, I'm, I don't deliberately mask it but I'm quite good at managing myself. At this stage in my life, I've, I understand myself very well. But one of the things that is is significant of, of, of what you were saying just then about leadership is if you have the ability to self-reflect, what can often get in the way is that we turn up the focus on that self-reflection and we become self-absorbed or overwhelmed by our negative thinking or our, our critical thinking. And we've all worked with people. At the moment, lots of people like talking about narcissism. I don't want to go down that route, really, because unless you've done a clinical evaluation, someone isn't a narcissist unless you've got a document to say they are. But the inability to self-reflect means that we work with and encounter people in all walks of life that don't know what it feels like to be around them. Or if they do, they like their power position and status. So they use it to leverage themselves, rather than the way that you and I would like to work, which is to make things better for others. And that type of leader would call, or may assume, that the work that I do is soft and fluffy. They're unable to see the connection between engagement, commitment, compassion, and collaboration, leading directly to the bottom line that's the difference. You know, what I do isn't soft and fluffy. It's about helping senior leaders hold a mirror up to themselves and to realise that they're probably getting in their own way.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because there's so much, you know, there's reports and things out now around inclusive leadership and qualities of an inclusive leader. And one by Deloitte, actually, I can't remember the date that that came out, but it's interesting when you look and, and there's also, you know, HR frameworks that are looking at effective leadership and some of that effective leadership is different to what it used to be. You know, there's all conversations about emotional intelligence and, and all the rest of it, but there are, you know, a number with a number of C's in them, you know, collaboration, communication, compassion, like you've talked about, and connection, and really connecting with your people so that, you know, you can kind of get the best out of them. And my mission is to inspire the world within my reach. It's about educating people around mental health and wellbeing, but also the work in terms of with the workplaces that I do. It's really interesting because sometimes you come from really different perspectives and Often we will have conversations and I'll say to them, do you genuinely want to change this? Or is this something that you feel that you need to do? Because when we genuinely want to change this, we see it as something that isn't something that we're going to do for the next 12 months or we're not ticking boxes off this year we're having a long-term strategy and a long-term focus and we're providing our employees with training that supports them around mental health and well-being around resilience around adapting around educating people on self-awareness really so that they can do their own self-educating rather mm. than just saying that this is a personality trait that you need to have in in the business it's you know, if we're in a privileged position, being in an organisation where we have got the funds to be able to provide that, actually, let's start changing the world by supporting the people within the organisation so that they can start supporting the people outside of the organisation. I mean, we've got so much work to do, but I'm really starting to see that organisations aren't just seeing it as a cost now coming out from the bottom line they're seeing it as an essential thing to retain staff to make sure that they're well to be an employer of choice and actually to get the results that they need so there are organisations out there that do want to be true businesses that acknowledge that they employ humans.
1: I think we've got to realise as well that The people who have been in senior leadership positions probably for the last 20 years did their MBAs or their their master's degrees, their postgraduate qualifications 30 years ago. And what's fantastic about our society is we're growing. The population of the planet is growing. So 30 years ago, there weren't many people that were doing research around psychology. There might have been some at Harvard Business School, there might have been a few others, but there wasn't that much going on. Now, there are thousands all over the planet, hundreds of thousands in China, people that are looking at, what is it that makes us all much more similar? Whereas 40 or 50 years ago, people were very focused on what makes us different. You know, what makes people more powerful? What makes you the best? That's helpful, but what we really need in a society if we're all going to move forward is understanding what helps everybody go a step forward. So when I'm going into corporate organisations, and of course, I've had to go through a journey of evolution, of understanding that I can only work with people that get it. If I go to an organisation with a C-suite that thinks that I've got to go and work with a certain department to change their culture... They've not been able to appreciate that part of the problem is them, mm-hmm. because it's the senior leadership suite that define the culture. Their behaviours doesn't matter how much advertising and propaganda they put out about their values of their business, whether they're able to walk their talk will predict. The experience of any end user or customer to that organization. So, when I meet organizations that get it, we go in and we look at what is it that we need to understand in terms of what makes people want to communicate, what makes people want to stay in an organization. And it's feeling cared for, it's feeling respected, it's feeling that it's okay to have a child
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and still have a career. You know, where have we been for 50 years? Yeah. What have we been doing? I, I saw some social media material this week for an organisation that's leading the way, pioneering in saying that we're going to really care for somebody if they miscarry. So the woman and the partner, if they have a miscarriage, they've got a policy in their organisation of taking care. And it made me tear up. Mm. And I just thought, why on earth don't we do that why is that pioneering in 2021
0: it's those conversations as well about supporting women going through the menopause for example or supporting women potentially with problems with their cycle and starting to understand the ebbs and flows that women are dealing with
1: i had to catch up with somebody that i worked with in 1992 we've been we've remained friends for years and we we were both in agreement that the biggest tragedy of our society is that perimenopausal women with all of that IP, all of that knowledge, unplug from corporate organisations because they go, nah, I've had enough. I'm not going to put up with this rubbish anymore. And they go and set up on their own, which is fantastic for them. And it's fantastic for their clients. But it's an absolute tragedy for the hundreds of thousands of employees in organisations that are crying out for the types of cultures that senior female executives will create. Because one of the things that women bring to an organisation is, and I'm not blowing smoke up your arse to use a a very aggressive phrase, but what, what I am saying is that women create a very different type of culture in a business.
0: I think it depends on who they are, though. I've seen that happen, yes, and also I've seen it happen badly as well.
1: So part of what makes a big difference is when we've defined the values of the organisation. Yeah. It goes wrong very quickly when we promote people without support. Often what we do is we're all very concerned about recruiting and then never think about the onboarding process. Yeah. So what we like to do is get people excited about a job and we oversell it, and we don't. We don't really put an awful lot of time into evaluating competence. So people get really excited about a new promotion. It doesn't matter what level you're at in an organisation. If you've been promoted, you've told your partner and your mum, you've told your granny if she's still alive. I've got a new job, and everybody's excited. And you start the new job, and the boss just throws the keys at you and says, "Well done, congratulations. Now let's see what you can do." Without any kind of support post. Giving the opportunity. So, values, mission, what's your responsibility? What's the difference between your responsibility and your authority? What are you accountable for? Yeah. What are the subtle norms in the organization? Because if we're taking our reference from powerful men, then probably that's going to cause the problem. Mm. So, I hear what you're saying, but I think one of the biggest problems that we've got is. We, we tend not to recruit for competence. We get bamboozled by people that are loud. You know, we're very good in contemporary society at making stupid people famous.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's
1: a big problem.
0: I would agree with you on that. I mean, I think there's lots of conversations around kind of introverts being a bit left on the shelf.
1: Absolutely.
0: And also, I've seen it a number of times where people are promoted because they can talk a good story it doesn't necessarily mean to say that they've got the skill set that sits beneath the surface and the and the level of competence that's there but they're good at saying the right things yes yes yeah. and it's a real challenge there's you know there's lots of organizations that do it really really well but there are also lots of organizations that that I've still got a lot to learn and you know when I said before about women in positions of c-suite level sometimes they perhaps are conditioned to the point where they act in a way that's more masculine let's say so they almost use more masculine traits to be able to lead a business because they think that that is what should happen. And I'm not sure whether that is always the right way.
1: I think we could probably spend a few hours talking about this. I'm sure many of your listeners will be, their interest will be piqued here in the tone of the conversation. What I'm interested in is whether as leaders we can notice when we're judging, whether we can notice ourselves that we're shaming other people whether we've got enough self-awareness to and and confidence to be able to take our stripes off and say in a in a group but I mean wouldn't it be amazing if we all started a new job and said hey guys I've been given this role and responsibility but I don't have all the answers yeah I really want to work with you in a way that we can collaborate and that I can learn from you and that I can bring the skill set that I've got to help you get to where you want to be. So we are moving from, I've got it, I work with a fantastic organization in India based in in Mumbai and in the US. Their brand is Conscious Development. So are you consciously aware of the language that you're using? And are you consciously committed to being either the umbrella that protects your team? I mean, I think there are functions of leaders. Number one is to keep the fans off the pitch. You know, your number one responsibility as a senior leader is to make sure that your team have got what they need in order to be successful. Yeah. And that includes absolute clarity about what good looks like. Yeah. But I think it's very, very difficult in most organisations to drill down to people at any, any level in the organisation for them to be able to express to me clearly what their job is because the senior leadership change it. They change the ground rules all the time. Change the goalposts. That's the language that we use, isn't it? Mm. So if we can encourage our employees that are maybe lower down to find their voice, to challenge upward, to call people up, not call them out, not shaming, naming and shaming, but call people up when their behaviours don't match the values of the organisation, that would be, I'd call that radical collaboration. That would be quite a different culture we'd be creating.
0: Yeah. But I think leadership at the top have got to be accepting, not judgmental around it, but be curious about whatever is brought to the table. And I think that's when it starts to become dangerous and and not a psychologically safe environment where people that are willing to challenge get labelled as people that may be cynical or negative.
1: So I think that one of the most powerful things that we can do if we're going to reboot is to be intrigued by what we're feeling, to be inquisitive and to notice what's going on for us. And at school, we don't learn about emotional self-regulation. Some kids around the country are learning that post-COVID because we are understanding about mindfulness and managing anxiety. But when I speak to a group of execs anywhere in the world and I say, how many emotions are there? Most people fumble after about four. You're thinking now, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, Google it. There are about 14.
0: Well, it's interesting that you say that because we did a session last night in one of my coaching groups. We did a session on like the feelings wheel. Great. Yeah, so that was interesting. We had a laugh as well as uh, exploring our feelings because I think, Well, absolutely right. And one of the things that
1: we don't teach our children, and certainly my generation didn't learn, I don't know whether your generation learned this, but not 1% of what you're feeling is anybody else's responsibility. We watch Hollywood, we love movies, and people shout strap lines like, you make me feel, you can fill in the dots. And no one can make another person feel anything. What you're feeling is yours alone, and it's a choice. So when we learn that, and we can start by using a tool like the emotions wheel, and we can go, right, what's the feeling? Where do I feel it in my body? On a scale of 1 to 10, how, how powerful is that feeling? And if I'm feeling overwhelmed by that feeling, what, could, what one small thing could I do to reduce that feeling? We can suddenly start to manage anxiety. We can manage insomnia we can manage the fear of presenting publicly. You know, we don't need to be shouting and ranting and raving at other people when we're in the grip of our own fear. And we can understand that anger is a secondary emotion that's designed through evolution to protect us Mm. so that other people don't see our vulnerability. They don't see our hurt. They don't see our fear. And what we can use through emotional self-awareness and these these development tools is we can we can move forward by having much more powerful intimate relationships with our families with the people that we you know that we want to bring close to us and if we do that then we might have more powerful and dynamic relationships with people at work
0: yeah well that has definitely been a very interesting slant on a reboot. Now, there is something that we haven't talked about so far, which I am hoping, knowing you, will come out in this section. yeah, How do you switch off to switch on? So what helps you to pause so that you can kind of step back out of that autopilot and perform at your best?
1: Well, I'm from Sheffield. So we have a phrase in Sheffield about being mardy. So if I start getting mardy, it's because I'm overwhelmed. It's because I'm tired. So in order for me to recover, I've learned and it's taken me a long time. It's taken me a lot of mistakes. I've learned that I need to completely unplug. So I need time out. I need to float in the bath. I need to write maybe a really honest and true letter to the person that's driven me up the wall and then burn it obviously because they don't need to know what my <laughs> were. yeah well, that, that stays yeah. private so that's what that's one thing that I do and there's something really powerful about smiling so this might sound a bit silly but actually if you're feeling overwhelmed right now, if your listeners are feeling a bit stressed, if they just smile and time themselves smiling for 30 to 60 seconds, you'll find that you're in a quite a different frame of mind. And this is because of hormone release. You know we're learning an awful lot more about neuroscience. So for me to reboot, I need to be around leaves and trees or by a walk for an hour or a cycle ride in that kind of environment will completely refresh me.
0: Yeah. But I want to know more about, you talk about bossing like a Buddha. So ah.
1: talk to us about
0: talk to us about Buddhism. Well,
1: I could talk for days about Buddhism, and I've been practising Buddhism for 30 years. I'm in an organisation called the SGI, which is the Gakkai International, and we chant Nam, Myoho Renge, Kyo, and... The purpose of the practice is that when you say Namyo Horengako, you're calling the name of your eternal Buddha nature, the wisest, most courageous, and compassionate aspect of your life. And what we believe is that the struggles in your life make you stronger and wiser. And we use the analogy of the lotus flower. So the lotus flower is incredibly beautiful, and the seed and the fruit manifest simultaneously, which is very, very rare. I don't know whether there's any other, if there's botanists on the line, they'll correct me. But I think it's the only plant that does that. There's usually a, an order of fruit and then seed. And, and what we, the analogy for, for us is that your wisdom, courage and compassion, or what we call the Buddha nature, is within you in every moment. There isn't a, a need to get over the problem and then become happy that your happiness is connected to the thing that's making you unhappy in the same way that the lotus flower's roots grow through mud. And the beauty of the lotus flower comes from the nutrients in that mud. So the SH1T in your life is what makes you stronger and wiser and is absolutely necessary for the next phase. What's pivotal, though, is that you develop the resolve to believe in the power of your own life but not just in your life but in the the potential and capability of everybody that you encounter
0: so oh this is so exciting <laughs> so this is a little bit like when we're trying to get people to talk about their emotions and the importance of not keeping those emotions kind of hidden within your soul is to get those emotions out and talk about them and not see that any emotion is a bad emotion. All emotions are good emotions. They're feeling, they're definitely better than feeling numb, aren't they? You know? So I suppose when you were talking about that and you were talking about kind of the lotus flower and it, it just really made me think about Actually, it's like connecting with those feelings that we might want to label as bad feelings, but also connecting with those feelings that, that we would label as positive feelings.
1: And I'm very careful. You know, I spoke about Trent a few minutes ago and there have been periods in my life. You know, many of my friends died from AIDS in the 80s. My best friend committed suicide when I was 19 and I found her. And I don't think there are many days go by that I don't think about her and the impact that her suicide had on her family. But I think that we we have to stop raising our children to believe that they're weak and vulnerable and that their happiness is dependent on someone else. You know, Buddhism teaches that your life is as indestructible as a diamond. And, you know, we're not weak. Those of us that have had overwhelming experiences, we've recovered. Yeah. You know, some some of us, unfortunately, if we don't take care of our mental health or we have a a genetic predisposition for a psychopathy or a a severe mental illness, we might not recover. But most of us will recover. And there is purpose and meaning in the situation. I mean, I don't know whether you knew in November I fell off my bike and broke both my arms. No, I
0: didn't
1: know that. Yeah, it was a complete nightmare. Went out for a bike ride on a Sunday afternoon to try and get rid of my COVID belly and made a poor decision, hopped on the pavement. The pavement was wet. And my bike went one way and I went the other way. 18 stone of middle-aged white man hits the, hits the pavement and snapped my wrists.
0: Oh.
1: So 10 weeks over Christmas was really, really agonizing. But in that time, I really learned about mindfulness in a way that I've never learned about mindfulness before. Because when you can't fill the kettle because it's too heavy, because you've got plastic casts on your wrists, you have to think about everything that you're going to do. And I really learned to create some space between that that might make me anxious. Maybe it's a text message. Maybe your listeners get annoyed by an email from somebody. The tone of that email and a little script runs in their head of, "Oh, I'd never send an email like that." Yeah. What we need to learn is that what someone else does is their responsibility. But our behaviour and our response to what someone else does is 100% our responsibility. Yeah. So part of managing our, our mental health and reducing anxiety, for example, is catching yourself when you're doing the washing up, still thinking about a text message you got four days ago and what you wish you'd said. Yeah. Just concentrate on the washing up. Yeah. Just be in that moment. Be with your children. Play you know enjoy having a powerful conversation and the other thing that I think made you laugh when we spoke recently was I said that I'd weeded my social garden
0: yeah, I did yeah
1: <laughs> I just noticed that there were some relationships even at this stage in my life that weren't reciprocal they weren't balanced and I don't have time for that I want to be supportive but I can't be filling the bath with hot water and then filling it with and topping it up with cold. Yeah. You know, we've got to have reciprocal equality in our relationships.
0: Definitely. So tell me a bit about your flourishing formula for living. How do you live life to the full?
1: You know, I'm going to be really honest. I think people can talk a lot of bull about this kind of thing. I think that we're quite complex houseplants. We need good food. We need great nutrition. I've I've discovered in the last few years the importance of taking supplements, vitamin supplements, sometimes hormonal supplements, absolutely making sure that you've got enough fiber in your diet, that your blood glucose level is right for all sorts of reasons. But for me, men and prostate cancer and risk of diabetes and and You know, the sugar manufacturers don't really care that we're dying of heart disease. They're not bothered. So it's about taking responsibility, rest and sleep, great relationships, having an inner circle, having a group of people. I mean, when Trent was dying, a psychologist said to me, point three people in your life that when they see your phone number come up on the phone, they know that you're going to cry your eyes out or you're going to scream about your boss and that their function isn't to counsel you. It's just to be there. And of course, the moment that I appointed those three people, I didn't need to ring them because I knew they were there.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And 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 they rock up because I've appointed them. You know, when people die, I I may I've been chatting to a friend of mine recently whose mum died, and she said, No one's messaged me. And I said, It's because no one wants to catch you when you're in a good mood. Everybody's thinking for you. So having an, an inner circle, great diet, lots of sleep, and I think clarity about who you are what is it that you want from this life what's valuable to you and stephen covey did a great a great service to humanity when he wrote a book called the the seven habits of highly affected people because in there he talks about beginning with the end in mind and if you if you think about what do you want people to say about you at your funeral that makes a big difference to the way that you live your life
0: yeah it massively does. I remember sitting there at my granddad's funeral and he did so much for charity. Mm. He gave so much to so many other people. What's his name? It's was called Lynn Trafford. Okay. And there's all sorts of things that are set up locally that he was part of or he initiated. Wonderful. Yeah, and there's even a building named after him. Gosh. Yeah, well, yeah, but he probably named it himself. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I remember sitting there and I remember thinking, do you know what? I want to be like that.
1: What did you decide for you in that moment? What did you decide for your future?
0: I mean, that was a long time ago, but it is. it, 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 was, it, it was just, it was before we had children. And, you know, I think I've probably taken a turn maybe a bit away from that and maybe that's where I've come back to now but yeah in life it it has always been about helping people being a school governor for a long time now probably about six years so as soon as the kids really you know were settled in school and things so I suppose I've kind of always had that in the back of my mind it's something that I wanted to do but obviously we had twins and then number three came along relatively quickly and being a career girl with three under three was uh, not exactly easy.
1: <laughs> well, it may, be, it may be that that conversation you had in your head at the funeral has driven you to where you are right now, but I'd really encourage you to, to journal after this conversation. Get your pen out and just write. Just write about who you would like your children to know when you're older, What's the version of you that they need to know about? Because if you live in line with your values, it doesn't feel like work. I'm not scared of doing a 12 or a 13 hour day, but when I do the work that I do, if I create a a programme for a bunch of leaders, what's incredible is watching them have a light bulb moment about how a small change in the way that they've prioritised their efforts has a ripple effect on their whole life. Yeah. And we tend to think that we know ourselves really well. And I think often we judge that by the reception that we get from our dogs. You know, this is a problem. <laughs> you know, we, if, we, if we could really have great relationships where people say, you know, Tim, when you said that on Friday, I didn't like the tone you used. If I went to a restaurant with my friends and I was rude to a waiter, my, my friends would all say to me, hey, are you all right? that's not like you
0: yeah yeah
1: so really having friends that hold us to account to our values that's also another another thing that I'd like to add
0: I think I've definitely got those friends so that's all right I'm all right I'm doing all right and and you know what it does make a difference values have always been massively important to me and that was my that was the turning point for me I had to kind of redefine those values and i think when you are living your values you're right it doesn't always feel like work at all
1: we're very fortunate in the time that we're living at the moment of access to information there are some absolutely incredible books at the moment people are writing people are publishing privately people like yourself doing incredible podcasts there's some really great resources out there that's free for us all to be able to change our life and, and, and change the way that our children, our grandchildren view the world.
0: Definitely. Any other books you want to tell us about before?
1: There's one book that I that I generally gift to my clients, which is Living Like You Mean It by Ronald Frederick. It's the book that great psychologists go to When they're feeling overwhelmed, when they're having troubles, it's about navigating emotions. There's a lovely, simple, quick read that I suggest any man that's in a relationship with anybody, male or female, reads, which is The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. If you've not read that, it's fantastic. Have you heard of Kristin Neff? She's an American psychologist. She's written a book called Self-Compassion. And and one of the things that I I really think is important for all of us to understand is emotional boundaries. And two scientists called Henry Cloud and John Townsend have written a book called Boundaries. And I can't recommend that enough. It's fantastic.
0: Yeah, definitely. Boundaries, healthy boundaries, healthy boundaries in business, healthy boundaries at home.
1: We didn't learn them, did we?
0: Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for today, Tim. If people want to get in touch with you, or we'll find out more about what you do, how can they do that?
1: Well, I'm on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest. Anybody that's got a Instagram account, I'd love to hear from you. I've got an Instagram, which is my company brand, which is Boss underscore Like underscore A underscore Buddha. Boss Like a Buddha, and I'm on Clubhouse as well with the same um, handle of Boss Like a Buddha.
0: Oh, that's great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Human Reboot Podcast. I'm Emma Last, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five-star podcast review and visit thehumanrebootmovement.com where you can find downloadable free resources, sign up to my mailing list, or connect with me on social. So that's the humanrebootmovement.com. Let's switch off so we can switch on. It's time for your human reboot.